target man is on a suicide mission for himself. ISIS is threatening to go even further, releasing a chilling video of Christians executed in a mass beheading. Students run to safety, some with hands still in the air. Syrian white helmet rescuers desperately trying to free victims. The winds are ferocious right now, gusting above 120 miles per hour. If you shooting taking place at the First Baptist Church. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Liquid Church. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we dive in, we got to say hi to all our campuses who are joining us through the broadcast today. Would you welcome them? Union County, Somerset County, Essex, Middlesex. We got them all. We're glad you're here for week three of our series, uh, The 11th Hour, Are We Living in the End Times? And uh, I just saw this week, I don't know if you saw this in the news, uh, Coachella, that's the music festival. Uh, Justin Bieber apparently uh, went to Coachella, came out on stage, and sang a worship song. Did you hear this? He act, yeah, he actually sang the lyrics to Reckless Love, that song we were singing before. And so I was like, clearly we're living in the end times, right? Like that's pretty much confirmation right there. Uh, we're calling it the 11th hour because we're asking this question, like, are the hands of history kind of winding down? Are, are we getting where the, where the uh, clock is kind of moving towards midnight, uh, the end of the world, the return of Christ? Uh, well, the truth is, if Fox News is to be believed, we're at less than 24 hours away. I am not kidding. I don't know if you saw this headline. It's all converging. From Fox News this week, it said, Biblical prophecy claims the rapture is coming April 23rd, numerologist says. Guys, you know when April 23rd is? That's tomorrow, okay? So students, you don't have to do your homework or pack for a business trip or clean the kitchen. It's like we're, we're going up, so eat dessert first. Uh, tonight. That's, uh, I'm just teasing about that um, because the reality is it's very silly. Whenever there are predictions about the end of the world or specifically about the return of Jesus, because it always contradicts the words of Christ himself. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 24? He said, about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In other words, God doesn't operate according to our timetable. Uh, he's not following our agenda. Rather, your Father in heaven, he sets the schedule for his prophetic calendar. So don't be alarmed. Don't freak out when you see stuff like that. Silly speculations have been around since uh, hundreds of years, you know. But I do have to say this. While we don't know, like, dates and times exact of Christ's return, we can say with confidence that we're seeing signs all around us. What the Bible says are birth pains uh, signaling the last days. And today I want to tackle two of the toughest topics in a message I'm calling Armageddon and the Antichrist. Uh, Armageddon, you know, what is that? Uh, we watch movies every summer where basically Will Smith saves the world from Armageddon, right? Usually involving aliens and zombies. Uh, but sometimes you hear that term, presidents have even mentioned it in the, in the diaries of Ronald Reagan. The former president actually wrote this in his journal in 1981. He was looking at the turmoil in the Middle East, and he wrote this. He said, got word of Israel bombing Iraq's nuclear reactor. I swear, I believe Armageddon is near. 
Well, today we're going to discover that Armageddon isn't just this final battle for planet Earth, but it's actually a geographical place in Israel where Jesus Christ will return to confront the Antichrist, which leads to the second question, who is the Antichrist? And just take a time out. If it's your first time, you may be like, what did I walk into, right? (laughs) This is one of those church full of end times nutters kind of thing. I get that. But this is the global leader who Revelation really predicts will set himself up as a god, small g, deceiving the masses, promising to bring peace to the world, but ultimately brings death and destruction during the seven-year period known as the Tribulation. Now, if all this sounds confusing, what is all this stuff? Let me review a simple chart I gave you to start the series. And again, this is in our mobile app. Kind of helped us understand the sequence of events on God's prophetic calendar. (coughs) Excuse me. So the first coming, obviously, is when Jesus was born to this world. He lived 33 years, then he died on the cross for the sins of mankind. He's raised from the dead. He ascends to heaven. And after that, the church was born. This is where we are right now. You and I are part of the church, what's called the church age. Where is Jesus? We are the body of Christ. We're waiting for Jesus to return in the next event uh, known as the rapture. Now, remember, we put a J here like that because when Jesus returns the first time, To take all believers to be with him in heaven, he actually doesn't set foot on planet earth. It says, we will meet the Lord in the air. And so then this is when Jesus returns. It says, I'm going to take all dead Christians, so they're going to resurrect them. And we're going to rapture all living Christians home to heaven to be with me. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the next event on your timeline, okay? Meeting the Lord Jesus in the rapture. Now, I want you to imagine, if that happened, you know, this week, imagine our world suddenly emptied of all Christians everywhere. There's no church. The restraining bolt of the Holy Spirit is pulled out. It will usher in a period of darkness and decay, a period of seven years known as the tribulation. And we're going to talk about that today. Now, there is some diversity of opinion about when the rapture happens, the middle tribulation, the end. I'm presenting this kind of view to you. But this is really where it culminates in the battle of Armageddon when the second coming of Christ happens. And this is when Jesus doesn't return for his church but with his church. We return with him. This time, Jesus returns to actually judge the nations. He returns with all believers and the angels of heaven. He establishes the kingdom of God on earth, a period of a thousand years known as the millennium. And after that, eternity begins, like the apostle Paul said. So we will be with the Lord forever. That's eternity. Now, last week, Pastor Nathan taught you about eternity, right? The, the new heavens and the new earth that God has in store for those who love him. That's the good news. But I drew the short straw, okay? I'm like, Nathan's like, you know, we're like, how are we going to divide up the series? Nathan's like, I'll take eternity for 10,000, please. Uh, So I get tribulation, right, in the Antichrist, all the bad stuff. And I don't want to scare you, but my hope is that, see, when you understand Bible prophecy, it doesn't fill you with fear. It actually gives you more faith. It gives you confidence because you see that God has his hand on the wheel of history. He's actually directing the course of events, and so you don't have to freak out. But here's what I want you to know. I split today's message into two parts. The first part is like the bad news, right? And and it may make you groan like, oh, this is tough stuff. The second half is going to make you cheer, though. Because when we look at the climactic return of Christ to actually wipe evil off of this planet, all the brokenness that we see, to judge wickedness, it is soul-stirring. It encouraged me this week. So first 20 minutes is going to be sobering. Last 20 minutes, celebration. You with me? All right? Okay. Now, if you look at this chart, it's actually kind of easy to see how kind of the events of the end times unfold in Scripture. 
I mean, when the rapture happens again, all Christians suddenly removed from the face of the earth, Jesus calls us, he says, you're to be the salt of the world, salt of the earth. What does that mean? Um, they didn't have refrigeration in those times. So if you wanted to preserve something, you actually rubbed salt and meat so that it wouldn't rot. So right now, the church is a preservative. Like, the world is somewhat kind of rotting, a lot of immorality. The church is here, the Holy Spirit is here. Without salt, things decay. We're the light of the world. Without light, things get dark. And that's how the Bible describes the Great Tribulation. This period of darkness and decay. I want you to imagine millions of people, some estimate a billion people, removed from the face of the earth. There'll be shock, confusion, chaos. Emergency lines will be jammed, phone lines, economies in shambles. I mean, think of governments, right? Christian leaders who, who governed with the humility of the Holy Spirit will be gone. The church is gone. The Holy Spirit, the, the restraining bolt right now of, of things is gone. And Jesus himself talked about the tribulation. He described it this way in Matthew 24. He said, for then there will be great, what, tribulation, such as not has been since the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Now that word tribulation just translates to troubles or sufferings, uh, pains or persecutions, and it's this seven-year period of misery and suffering like the world has never seen. So you may watch the news, right, and you're like, man, the world's getting darker and darker, and it is. There's a lot more rampant greed and arrogance and immorality, but it's nothing compared to what will happen in the tribulation, according to scripture. When all Christians are removed from the earth, the influence of the Holy Spirit is gone, the results will be horrific. In Matthew 24, Jesus said there are really six signs that signal the tribulation is fast approaching. I listed them in your message notes today. Again, these are in your mobile app. You can kind of fill in the blanks, send them to yourself. But Jesus said the approaching tribulation will be a time of great deception. That's the first one if you're taking notes. Jesus said, many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will deceive many. A time of deception, a time of dissension, Jesus said. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. It'll be a time of great disaster, Jesus said. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. A season of death, he actually said, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. Again, this is dark stuff to start. It's a time of defection where people will actually fall away from faith. He said, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So people actually turn away from God, turn away from each other. And it will be time, Jesus said, of great delusion, meaning many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. In the last days, Jesus said, there'll be a lot of false religions. There'll be a lot of, you know, a deceiving philosophies that masquerade as, oh, this is the truth of God, but in fact are fake news, okay? Delusions of the devil. Now, aren't you glad you're not here for this, okay? Jesus said this to his followers. He said, uh, he said if those days had not been cut short, understand, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect... Those days will what? Be seven years. Now think of it this way. The rapture, in a lot of ways, is God's evacuation plan for his children. It's a loving father removing his sons and daughters from the earth to spare them the trauma when the tribulation breaks out. If you watch the wildfires in California over the last couple of years, destroying homes along the, the West Coast, I read an interesting article where uh, state officials had to evacuate 10,000 homes in about a half hour. 
And so they got a, a, a phone kind of chain, and they called homeowners, and they're like, hello. And they're like, this is the state police. Get out now. And they're like, what? Just get out immediately. Run to safety. And neighbors, you know, neighborhoods just kind of emptied out as these flames came down the mountains. Guys, that's what prophecy is. God is the father calling up his children saying, get out now. Uh, run to safety. See, the rapture is God's escape plan for his family. So this isn't like some heartless, angry God who's like, turn and burn and, you know, innocent people. It's just the opposite. Why do you warn someone? Because you care about them. When you love them, you're like, I'll do anything to spare them pain and loss. And think about what God did. He said, I, I want to spare you pain and loss so badly, I'm going to allow my son to suffer on the cross in your place. When Jesus came at the first coming, he came as a lamb of God to be slaughtered on the cross. And when you put your trust in his sacrifice, you are saved from the coming wrath and tribulation. So God doesn't want you to be here for any of this. And when you trust Christ for salvation, we've had hundreds of people do that this spring, right? We're going to have all these baptisms on May 6th. The good news is you won't be. As a Christian, you actually have faith, and you can claim God's promise in 1 Thessalonians. I love this verse. This is a great verse. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive what? Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So praise God. You're not here for any of the horrors, the wrath about to engulf the earth. Because when God takes his church uh, at the rapture, our planet will lose a lot of its population. In America, maybe 50 million. That's how many claim to be Christian. Now, that may be cultural Christian. They just mean like they're not Jewish or something. But um, imagine if it's just conservative. 25 million people gone. Predictably, it will cause uh, instability, global turmoil, a lot, lot of chaos certainly in the culture, and probably spur this outcry for peace and security at any cost. You know, and in, 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 in that moment, I want you to imagine a leader in the world steps forward and says, I have the solution. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. Now, that phrase you actually won't hear in the book of Revelation written by John, but John is the first one to coin it in his epistles in the letter that he wrote. Here's what he wrote. John said, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Now, as the title suggests, you probably already get kind of what it means because you see the prefix anti, it means against. So this is somebody who is against Christ, but anti also means in place of. So this is somebody who's going to actually try to take the place of Christ into this vacuum of leadership. At first, he will say, I am here to be the world's savior, but in truth, he is a counterfeit Christ. Now, a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to speculate who is the antichrist. And if you Google that, you will get 9 million hits, all right? I Googled that this week. I'm going to recommend you don't do this, okay? But I was like, research, who is the Antichrist? And I clicked on some of the links, and some predictable faces appeared from presidents, right? Past and former. People are always speculating. This one they're always showing because Revelation predicts the Antichrist will broker a peace deal between Israel and her Arab enemies, which has been the goal of many presidents and politicians. But Antichrist uh, search is also linked to the Kardashian sisters, which <laughs> I was like, you know, kind of a three-headed beast. I, you know, I <laughs> you gotta see that. Uh, the reality is it, it's fruitless to speculate who the Antichrist is because Scripture says, I, we want to tell you what he'll be like. 
And this is Revelation chapter 13 where we're going to camp out today. Now, as we read this chapter, I just want to warn you, okay, this is going to get weird quick, all right? That's because Revelation is not an ordinary book of the Bible. It's called apocalyptic literature. I mean, it has all these kind of strange symbols to represent future realities. I had one guy, um, he said that to my open up Revelation started reading, it felt like I was watching a Quentin Tarantino movie on acid, you know? Uh, it's just this weird stuff, but I'm going to break this down for you, so just kind of track along. In Revelation 13, here's what John writes. So Revelation means revealing, unveiling, and this is Jesus revealing to John what's about to come. It says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each had a blasphemous name. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. Now, I'll stop there again, right? So, like, weird, bizarre descriptions. But the Bible basically refers to the Antichrist as the beast, and there's a reason for that. It's not because he's an animal. In fact, he will probably be someone who's incredibly striking and charismatic and, and a global politician, but he's called the beast because of his character. Although at first he'll appear to be the world's global savior, he will in fact turn out to be the world's cruelest dictator. The Antichrist will make Hitler, Caesar, and Bashar al-Assad seem tame by comparison. That's why he's called the beast. His leadership will be known for its brutality, especially towards God's chosen people, Israel. Notice John says here, the dragon, that's Satan, Gave the beast his power, his throne, and his authority. So think of it this way. The beast is essentially the son of Satan. It's, it's like the Antichrist is a satanic superman. He's the personification of evil who will persecute God's people and lead the armies of earth into battle against the armies of heaven. Now, people sometimes get this confused, the beast, the dragon, all that. So think of it this way. I put this in your notes. As Christians, we worship the Holy Trinity, right? We worship God the Father, uh, His Son Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. But when the tribulation starts, an unholy trinity will be revealed. Satan, the first person, the kind of the father of the unholy trinity, his satanic son, the Antichrist, and instead of the Holy Spirit, you have the false prophet. Because the job of the Holy Spirit is to direct worship and praise to Jesus in the same way the false prophet is going to try to get people to worship the Antichrist as God. Now, what will he be like? Revelation tells us this. The Antichrist first will wield global power. Not national power, global power. Like one world government. If you're taking notes, it's the first thing that Revelation says. The Antichrist is actually energized by Satan. He is empowered by the devil himself. And although he appears benevolent at first, he is in fact a satanic superman. Again, he's Antichrist, right? So he's against Christ. He's in place of Christ. And as a counterfeit Christ, he will demand worship from the world. Worship that should rightfully go to the living God. Instead, he's going to say, no, that's, that's for me, the imposter, the antichrist. Here's what verse 4 says. People worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast. And they asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against the antichrist? Now, if the antichrist is the epitome of evil, you may be like, well, why would people worship him? I mean, if he's such a bad dude and, you know, he's killing everybody, why, why would, because that's not how he comes at first. At first, he comes as a peace-loving politician, that I'm going to actually bring peace to the world. And how's he going to do that? If you look at verse 5, it says, Scripture says he will possess incredible charisma. 
So Beast isn't about his appearance, it's about his character. Outwardly he may be handsome, outwardly he's probably a very polished orator, but he'll sway the masses with a spellbinding promise. Look what it says. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for how long? 42 months, three and a half years. In other words, half of the tribulation. The first half, he will promise to bring peace to the entire world. And people are like, yes, please. And prophecy says he will actually offer a covenant with Israel who is at war with her Islamic enemies. Now, I want you to imagine this happens this week, right? I mean, we're watching like this North Korea drama unfold, and hopefully, you know, there's no more nuclear testing and all that kind of stuff. But I want you to imagine somebody solves the North Korea thing, and then this leader says, not only that, I have a plan for the Middle East. He actually steps into the mayhem and mess of the Middle East, and he brokers a temporary peace treaty between Israel and her Arab enemies. I mean, Every president for 60 years has tried to do this, and this guy actually does it. What would happen? He would be viewed as a global statesman, a genius, a savior around the world. But the Bible says that the beast has another motive. It was given power, John says, to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So one world government, the Antichrist, will consolidate power, bringing together a coalition of ten countries. That's why the horns have ten crowns on them, to wage war against the Jewish people. That's God's people, okay? Why the Jewish people, right? We're we're in Revelation. Go back to Genesis, remember? God said from the outset of creation, the Jews are my chosen people. Israel is my treasured possession. And the Jewish people will be in the Antichrist's crosshairs. Now, you may be like, oh, I don't know, this sounds like a conspiracy theory. Is this, is this hard to imagine? I want you to think back to the 1930s and 40s when Hitler was first rolling across Europe conquering nations and said, as part of my solution, I'm going to systematically exterminate Jewish people through the Holocaust. Now, Hitler, I mean, most people would be like, that's the Antichrist. Now, Hitler was not the Antichrist of Revelation, though you understand he's a prototype or a preview of what's to come. His Nazi symbol was actually a broken cross, right? Under which he said, under this banner, I'm going to exterminate six million of God's people in the Holocaust. But he's not alone. See, history is full of leaders who tried to use their nation's power to wipe out the Jewish people from Pharaoh in Egypt to Haman in Iran to ISIS today in Iraq. In the same way, the Antichrist will wage war against God's people. He will be Antichrist and he will be anti-Israel. For centuries, um, people have tried to like decode who the Antichrist is based on verse 18. John says, let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is, what's the number? Six, six, six. Who's heard that before? No, right? Number of the beast? Okay, cool, okay. Um, by the way, do you know what 666 translates to in Greek? Fortnite. Parents of middle schoolers are like, oh, bro, <laughs> gotcha, gotcha there. It's a video game. All right. Um, but he says it's the number of man. Here, here's the deal. Man was created on the sixth day, right? Man was told, I want you to work six days out of seven. A Hebrew slave couldn't be in bondage for more than six years. The number 666 just represents man tripled, taken to the extreme. 
And some have found a way to, you know, they can get Hitler's, you know, letters and the alphabet, like all the match up to 666. But Hitler was not the Antichrist. He was satanic, no doubt. But he was a preview or a prototype of the one to come. Look what John writes. He says, every spirit that doesn't acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. In other words, the the Antichrist is a spirit that's already in operation right now on our planet. From the original demonic hatred of the Jews by Pharaoh in Egypt, to Queen Jezebel who tried to exterminate the Jewish prophets, to Haman in the book of Esther, this was Persia that tried to destroy the Jews, even to the Romans who sacked Jerusalem, there's been this Antichrist spirit. Hitler and the Holocaust were fueled by the spirit of Antichrist. And honestly, I'll just say it out loud, I believe so are modern-day radical Islamic militant terrorists like ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, who threatened to wipe Israel off the map. That's the Antichrist spirit already in the world, waiting for the moment that it settles and consolidates in one person. Again, you see this in the Middle East explicitly with radical Islamic terror. And I'm not being political, I'm being prophetic. Like, like literally, like somewhere like, oh, I don't know, is this like, you know, I, I understand like modern people have no ears for this. Modern people prefer a generic evil. Like, well, people sometimes make bad choices. <laughs> so I, I don't mean to like be too brash, but let me be super blunt. When people crash jumbo jets into buildings saying they're serving God, that's satanic power. It's not a political statement. It's the spirit of Antichrist. You understand? When a gunman enters a school and mows children down with an automatic weapon, that's satanic power. It's not mental illness. It's the spirit of Antichrist. I'm not being political. It's just prophetic. See, the Bible doesn't tell us who the Antichrist is, but it tells us what he will be like. This is so important, guys, because he will cause chaos and carnage across the globe. The Bible says not just uh, violence, but he will actually control the economy. So one world government, one economy. Verse 16 and 17 say this. The Antichrist also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, so every class, free and slave, to receive a, a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could, what, buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So you've heard of the, the mark of the beast 666 on your forehead and, you know, or, or tattoo. This is not a tattoo. This is a tool of financial control, you understand? Anybody who doesn't receive the mark won't be able to buy or sell in the global economy. And again, 20 years ago, can we just acknowledge this? This seemed like science fiction, like I can't imagine how, some, how they could get all of our private information <laughs> or financial records. That seems so far-fetched, right? 20 years ago, today the technology is here. You got a phone in your pocket? <laughs> okay. Right? Location services, pinpoint your movements, cookies in your online browser, uh, to RFID, radio frequency identification. Let me show you a picture what drives all this. This is a radio frequency identification chip. I blew it up. This is actually the size of a grain of rice. And it's inserted beneath the skin so it can track your, your movements. Some of you have pets with this. It's kind of like a doggy lojack. Have you ever seen this? 
Like when you buy a puppy or something, and you're like, oh, if it runs away, they actually will insert this little chip underneath the skin of their neck, and then you can help locate where your, your runaway dog is. Now, don't freak out, okay? If you, if you have a chip in your dog, he's not the Antichrist, okay? <laughs> your cat probably is. I, I just... <laughs> but these implants are currently being implanted right now in the hands of Alzheimer's patients in the fleshy part between their thumb and their forefinger. Why? Because when they wander off, they forget who they are, their medical ID, they can quickly understand who they are. These are wonderful, benign medical purposes. The governor of Mexico has actually surgically implanted these in the shoulder of everybody in the attorney general's office in Mexico City because it allows them to enter buildings so that drug lords, terrorists can't get in these, boop. Transistors are small and cheap. They actually cost less than a cent to produce. Not trying to freak you out, but the point is, 20 years ago, this was like science fiction, you know, revelation. Guys, it's, the technology is here. I'm like, yeah, you know, there'll be the day, right? You can start your, how do you start your car? Boop, right? Open a door, boop, you know, pay for your Starbucks. Thank you, boop. Actually, that's pretty, pretty cool. That would be awesome, right? Just kind of, the Antichrist, it says, will harness technology as an instrument to control the market. Not surprisingly, he'll back it up with military power. Verse 7 says this. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to what? Conquer them. He will be the unchallenged champion of the new world order, leading a coalition of ten countries, what, uh, what the Islamic forces of ISIS would call a caliphate, with missiles and muscle to back it up. So political power, economic control, Military might, and the Antichrist will wage war. War against who? Against Jews and against Christians, followers of Jesus. See, you may be like, wait a minute, I thought Christians were in heaven. Great question. See, you're tracking along. See, although you and me, all current Christians, we're in heaven. We're at home with Jesus. The Bible says during the tribulation, thousands of new converts to Christ will occur. In fact, probably the greatest revival of all time will happen during the tribulation. Because they will see the horror They will understand that Christ is real and call on his name for salvation. And that will enrage the Antichrist. Because his whole purpose is to steal worship from Jesus. And he will take and pour out his wrath on new Christians. Verse 10 says this, If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. So new Christians will be martyred for their faith during the tribulation. They'll be persecuted. They'll be tortured. They'll be beheaded for refusing to worship the Antichrist. Now, again, just time out. I told you the first 20 minutes are dark, right? <laughs> right? I realize this is like kind of grisly. And even though we know, hey, we're not here for this, it's disturbing to think about. But you can't forget at this moment. Your hope and your home is where? It's in heaven. So you take a moment to thank God because the church is not on earth during the reign of the Antichrist. It should give us fresh urgency to share the gospel with our lost friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus yet. In fact, That's possibly one of the reasons that America is not mentioned in the end times. Did you know that? It's interesting. Scripture names all these different nations in the end times. It talks about Israel. It talks about Persia, which is modern-day Iran, even Libya. But the United States is never mentioned. Why is that? That's the first question I'm going to address in this week's bonus content. Where is America in Bible prophecy? There's, There's three possibilities. I put this on the app. There's a video you can watch and dig into it. And the second question I'm going to address is what role does Islamic terror play in the end times? All right, I don't have time to get into all this right now. But if you want to hear some possibilities, just download the Liquid Church app. You get in the App Store or Google Play, whatever. It's completely free. 
but it allows us to dive a little bit deeper even uh, than we can go this morning. Point is this, standing against the Antichrist (laughs) will be far better than joining forces when this happens, because the good news is you don't have to worry about any of this, guys. If, you, if you've confessed Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior, you're get, if you're getting baptized on May 6th, you're taking the mark of Jesus, amen? You're not going to be around for the tribulation or the Antichrist. And remember, this is so important, the Antichrist, while powerful, he is not equal to God. He, 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 has, he has some range, but he's on a leash. He'll be permitted to wreak havoc, persecute Israel and believers, but ultimately nobody Nobody can go beyond the limits that God sets, and that limit is seven years. Seven years of tribulation, carnage and chaos the world has never seen, culminating in the battle of Armageddon. And this is where I'm going to turn now into the hope that we have, the last few minutes here. Because Armageddon signals the return of Christ, when the, when the Antichrist actually sets himself up in Jerusalem, in the reconstructed Jewish temple, it's ground zero. He'll demand that the world bow down and worship him. And at that moment, Revelation 16 says that the unholy trinity will gather all the kings of the earth, all their evil allies. Look what John says. Then I saw, he's looking in the future, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet. They gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called what? Oh, louder, come on. Okay. If you ask what is Armageddon? It's the wrong question. If you ask, when is Armageddon? It's the wrong question. The right question is, where is Armageddon? Because according to the Bible, Armageddon is a place. It's actually a geographical location in Israel. This is a picture of it. I put it in your notes. It's called Megiddo. It's where we get Armageddon. You get it? Okay. This is an actual place you could visit if you went to Israel today. The Hebrew name Armageddon, I'm going to break it down. It's two parts. Har means mount, and Megiddo means slaughter. So the literal meaning of Armageddon is mount of slaughter. And it's a place in northern Israel. It's about 55 miles north of Jerusalem. It kind of looks like farm country. It's 10 miles from Nazareth, the town where Jesus grew up. It is a vast plain with a rich biblical history. Gideon defeated the Midianites here. Uh, This is the battlefield on which Saul was killed during a war with the Philistines. But it's not only like biblical battles in ancient history, but modern battles as well. It's kind of interesting. During World War I, the British fought the Turks here. And in 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte stood at Megiddo and he looked over this vast field. And this is what Bonaparte said when he looked at Megiddo. He said, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. There is no place in the whole world more suited for war than this. It is the most natural battleground on the whole earth. Wow. A prophetic word. Uh, All told, historians estimate that over 200 battles have been fought at or near Armageddon. So you see why it's earned its nickname, the Mount of Slaughter. Thousands of years of military warfare. And Revelation says Megiddo will be the staging ground for the final battle between Uh, The armies of the Antichrist setting itself up against the armies of Christ, of heaven. And you would think, oh my gosh, this is the end of history. And it is, but remember, history is his story. It's God's story. He's writing it. And although evil will rise, the king will return. Amen? Now when I say Jesus is going to return, I want to ask, what do you envision 
right? A lot of people like here, okay, Jesus is coming. You know, it's this hippie with long hair, a sash, you know. That's what our culture thinks of. They're like Buddy Christ, like, hey, I'm back. Uh, Jesus, meek and mild, petting a lamb. Uh-uh. According to Revelation, when Jesus Christ steps foot onto the battlefield of Armageddon in Revelation 19, he ain't nothing like that. When Christ returns, Scripture says he will come as the ultimate warrior. Look at this. I saw heaven, John says, standing open. Give him a hand. Yeah. Oh, you're going to applaud. Yeah. This is, this is, this is powerful. John's like, all this crap going on and on, and here he comes. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. What's a white horse? It's what a conqueror uh, rides. This is Air Horse One coming down, people, <laughs> whose, whose name is called Faithful and True because that's what God's promises are. And with justice he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. Okay? Listen. Yeah. If you've imagined Jesus returning to this earth, how have you imagined him? Because at his first coming, he was in swaddling clothes. At his second coming, he's in a robe dipped in blood. As his first coming, he rode, a, he rode a donkey into Jerusalem. On this one, he's an air horse one. I'm here to tell you guys, I need you to know this. When Jesus returns, he is not returning as the Lamb of God, but as the Lion of Judah. And he's coming. He's coming to unleash God's wrath on the Antichrist and all who follow him. It will be the most epic battle in the history of the world, and, and, and you and I will be a part of it. The Bible says we'll be riding shotgun. Look at verse 14. The, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, so we have the righteousness of Christ. And out of his mouth comes a, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he'll rule them with an iron scepter. And this, this is a verse, man. This is some verse. Listen to this. He treads, it's like stomping, the winepress of the fury, of the wrath, of God Almighty. That's a verse. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. Let's say it together. King of kings and Lord of lords. What will happen at Armageddon? You're conquering Christ, surrounded by legions of angels... And raptured saints, that's you and me, it's Joe and Erica and Tim and all believers from eternity past. All will descend together from heaven and hit the devil and his demons head on in battle. And the king will return with his bride, the church, to cleanse the earth and actually bring peace and justice to this broken world that we see awash in sin. Now some of you are freaking out because you're like, I'm not sure I signed up for this, right? You're like, I have like this battle at... Don't worry. The truth is this. You won't lift a finger. Do you know that? <laughs> Satan's powerful, but he is no match for your Savior. Listen to how 2 Thessalonians 2 describes the outcome. It says, the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with what? The breath of his mouth. You ever talk to somebody with, like, coffee breath? And you're like, whoa, <laughs> 
He just opens his mouth and the battle's over. He opens his mouth and the Antichrist is destroyed by the splendor, the sheer glory and beauty of his coming. This is hard to imagine, but I want, you have to get this in your head. So I want to show you a clip from one of my favorite movies, Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? Let's, let's oh, let's, we're going to nerd out for a moment. <laughs> Author of Lord of the Rings is J.R.R. Tolkien. He was a Christ follower. He's a Christian. And he was a student of Bible prophecy. And so he wrote this story about Middle Earth that has this climactic battle because Middle Earth is under attack by an unholy trinity. Does this sound familiar? The satanic Sauron, Saruman, and the ring. And everybody must receive the white mark of Saruman on their forehead. What? Yes. And at the darkest hour of Middle Earth, a climactic battle occurs at Helm's Deep. There's this vast army of orcs. They're like demons. They're these foul demonic spirits. They're like coming over the walls to annihilate the race of men. But as the battle rages and you think this is it, the race of men is destroyed, Aragorn remembers the prophecy of Gandalf. Look to my coming! At the light, at the first light, look to the east. And I remember seeing this scene in the movie theater. It like gave me chills. I wanted to like stand up and clap. <laughs> because to me, it reminds me of Revelation 19. Just as all hope seems lost, a savior on a white horse descends. Watch this. <laughs> so much bad has happened but even the shadow will pass a new day will come and the king will return understand guys that gives me chills because i think that is a foreshadow of revelation 19 
when your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, at the most desperate and darkest hour in humanity, returns with the armies of heaven behind him, pouring out the Father's wrath and judgment on the Antichrist and all that is foul and evil and keeps our world in bondage and brokenness. I want you to imagine your Savior coming on his white horse, leading a charge, fire in his eyes, raptured saints and angels side by side against the demonic enemies of God. Can I ask, what does that stir in you? you still, I'm telling you what it stirs in me. Does that make, like, when you read Revelation 19, does it make you want to cheer? Because some of you are like, yes, you're like clapping. Others of you are like, that's troubling. <laughs> right? Just to call it out here. This is the problem a lot of people have with Christianity. Because they look at that and they say, how could a loving God pour out his wrath? Like it's so Old Testament, you know? I prefer Jesus meek and mild, swallow, you know, petting lambs, right? I get it. That's because you're like me, right? You'd rather hear about the love of God. Can I just tell you, I'd rather preach about the love of God. Because no one, no one likes to hear about the wrath of God. But here's the truth. Love and wrath are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have perfect love without having wrath or anger. See, because the God of the Bible is infinitely good, meaning he is perfect, holy, he abhors evil, he hates it, he can't stand it. Because evil is the enemy of goodness. Evil is like a parasite. Evil is a cancer on goodness. And it destroys all that is good and pure and loving. Therefore, a perfect God rightly directs his wrath or his anger at evil. See, the biblical doctrine of wrath is deeply connected to the doctrine of God as perfectly good and wise and loving. Because a God who hates anything that defaces or distorts or damages his creation, especially when it's aimed at his children, he hates it. Now, I'm a father, right? I'm not, obviously, any dads here? Okay. Obviously, not as good as God. You mess with my kids, you're going to feel my wrath. Pastor Tim going to go Old Testament on you. <laughs> I'm not fooling, all right? Well, I want you to imagine how God feels as a father right now. As he looks down on our planet and sees all that goes on. I want you to imagine how your father in heaven feels when he looks down and he sees racist bigots bully and beat up and dominate someone for the color of their skin that he chose and gave them as a gift. That makes God angry. Anybody else? Makes him angry. How do you think your father feels when he sees eight-year-old girls in Thailand being sold into sexual slavery for tourists? That makes him angry. Makes me angry too. Anybody feel that? How do you think your father feels when an active shooter walks into a school or a mall or a church and shoots it up, shedding innocent blood with an AR-15? Damn right God gets angry. He better get angry. You don't want a God who doesn't get angry. So listen to me carefully. If your God doesn't hate racial prejudice, he is not good and he is not loving. If your God is not wrathful against child abuse or sexual assault, he is not good and he is not loving. As Dr. David Jeremiah wrote, if God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit and bomb and bully and enslave one another, then God is not loving and God is not good and God is not wise. So you understand? There must be another side of love, wrath, for love to be perfectly good and pure and wise. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. 
I will repay those who rape. I will repay those who traffic children. I will repay those who exploit the poor. You want a God who doesn't judge? Well, I don't like judging Jesus. Please. It's because we live in affluence and comfort. Let me tell you something. The Christians in China right now who are hiding, smuggling one Bible, they're like, please bring the wrath, God. The Christians in Syria right now who are being gassed by their own government, please bring the wrath. The only way we can have hope and we can forgive is if God judges. We don't like judge in the West. See, God hates sin in other people the way we do, but guess what? He hates the sin in us too. And so when Christ returns to judge the nations, it will be utterly good. It will be utterly righteous, utterly just, perfectly loving, and perfectly true. It will not be like some, some turn or burn cold-hearted kind of judgment. It is God's final cleansing of this broken world that has been damaged and distorted by Satan and sin. And God says, no more. I've had enough. This is the end. Amen? Give God a praise. Give him a praise. Imagine... I don't like a God who judges. Imagine if evil in this world was left unjudged. I don't want a God like that. Neither do you. In your heart, you know evil must be judged and sent to the pit of hell where it belongs. And that's exactly where the Antichrist goes. Last verse is Revelation 19, 20. says this, but the beast was captured with him, the false prophet. The two of them were thrown alive into the lake of fiery lake of burning sulfur. I don't want to get all fire and brimstone, but can I just say, thank God for hell. The truth is sin is real, hell is hot. And the Antichrist, the false prophet, are its first inhabitants. Satan himself will end up there as well at the end of the millennium. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, all members of the Holy Untrinity. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you understand? The unholy trinity, the author of so much human misery and pain and brokenness across history, ironically end up in everlasting torment. That's what hell is. It's eternity without God. It is no peace, no love, no Christ. Now, what does that stir? What, does that fill you with joy or despair? Because in Revelation, again, we're like, ah, oh boy, that's hard. Do you know what the universal response to ju God's judgment is? <laughs> it's like explosive joy across the nations. When Jesus defeats his enemies at Armageddon, Revelation says there will be like the roaring of a thousand stadiums celebrating. Revelation 19 says, After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. Guys, that's the purpose of prophecy. It's to get, fill you with faith and hope that this world is not all there is, that God is taking it somewhere, and perfect justice and love is going to be poured out. And you don't have to fear the future. You can have hope with this expectation of the salvation of God. I mean, can you imagine the day Jesus returns to set everything right? Can you imagine the day where sin and suffering are wiped like a whiteboard from the face of the earth? The truth is this, guys. One day we will all meet Jesus face to face and you have a choice. Will you meet him as your savior or meet him as your judge? Every, every human gets to choose. Eternal life or eternal fire. Choose life. Choose Jesus. 
I mean, he is the evidence of God the Father's love for you. He says, there's nothing you can do, and I want to spare you that I'm not going to spare my own son. I'm going to send him to die for you on the cross. And all you have to do is have humility to say, God, I need your forgiveness. I need your love. I need your grace. And when you receive that, guys, those of you who have put your trust in Christ over the last few weeks, you're getting, some of you getting baptized, you're like, yeah, I'm getting the mark of Jesus. And I have 100% confidence in the future. I, my prayer for you as you get baptized is that like the Thessalonians, listen to this, they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus. You can't wait. Why? What does Jesus do? Read it together. Who rescues us from the coming wrath. Can I ask, do you have that confidence? I mean, like, I have confidence. And it's not because I'm a pastor. It's not it's almost irrelevant. <laughs> I have confidence. I know I've read the end of the story. And my name's written in the book of life. Do you have that 100% assurance and confidence? I would be remiss if I didn't ask you that you know for sure that you'll be on the right side of the Lord when he returns to judge humanity. Because Revelation leaves you with this choice. Are you for Christ or anti-Christ? Not are you the anti-Christ, but like, are you for Christ or are you anti-Christ? You rejected him or you said, I'm going to worship something else in his place. I'm not sure. I don't like a God who judges. That's because you're making God in your own image. Are you ready? You ready for his return? Do, do you long for his glorious appearing? The early Christians ended each service and said, Maranatha, the Lord's coming. Jesus is coming. Do you long for it? I hope that's your prayer. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We are waiting and we are ready for your salvation. Amen? Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, I thank you for your powerful word. You haven't left us guessing. <laughs> Lord, I know the nightly news is like a reality show and it's just like crazy and it creates all this stress and anxiety and fear. Your word brings comfort and peace and hope and joy. It will eternal. It will explode, Father. We can't wait. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. May it be this week, God. We just want to say, Father, we're sorry for constructing you in our image sometimes. Your ways are higher than our ways. Who are we to question you? Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of our proud and arrogant spirit at times. Forgive me. Lord Jesus, we receive all that you have for us. We want to have your spirit of trust in the Father. We want to obey and walk in your ways. And Lord, we want to be light in a dark world. So would you empower your people now? As we leave this place, pour out your spirit on them, Father God. Let us never be ashamed of the name of Jesus. Maybe you're here today, your, your heads are bowed, we're all just praying. And you're like, I can't point to a moment when I've asked Jesus Christ to be my savior, personally. Come to church, but never, never talked to Jesus, said, come be my Lord. I wanna give you a chance to do that right now. I wanna give you a chance to pray a prayer of salvation. It's not magic words, it's just from the heart. In fact, I'm gonna pray, and why don't you just pray out loud after me? Let's, let's all pray this so nobody feels left out. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I need you. I'm sorry for my sins. I believe you died for me. I turn from my sin now. And I turn and receive you. Forgive me. Save me. I believe you were raised from the dead. Give me new life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. 
I commit to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.